The Mission publishes the number one newsletter for accelerated learning. Learn from the best and brightest by joining our community at themission.co forward slash subscribe. On this episode of The Mission Daily, Chad sits down with Debbie Clark Modero, author of Fast Into the Night, A Woman, Her Dogs, and Their Journey North on the Iditarod Trail. In part one of this two-part special interview, Debbie shares her story of resilience, the lessons she learned from running Iditarod, and what her dogs taught her about trust and leadership. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, it's Chad, and we are back on The Mission Daily with a special guest. If you are interested in resilience, you won't want to miss today's episode. I am joined by Debbie Clark Madero. Debbie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great that we got to catch up a little bit before we jumped into the interview. That's always fun when a guest can come in, meet the friends, meet the family. So thanks for taking the time for that. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun to see your operation here and <laughs> wonderful Palo Alto. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, we try to have fun and I, I think... You were picking up that vibe as well. So, you have a wonderful dog, Toasty. Toasty, he's a character, right? He's uh, doing anything he can to get attention these days, that's for sure. So Debbie, you're up to a lot, you do a lot, and you have some exciting news. The paperback version of your book is just released, just came out? It came out this summer. Awesome. So you are out here, you're doing some events, doing some promotions for it. But what I wanted to jump into was, how did you get started in this? How, how did your love for animals and how did you become a musher, basically? What kicked that off? Well, there was a fateful day. I had just suffered a third of three miscarriages and a friend called and said, I have a present for you. And I didn't want a present. It was Christmas time. And I said, Bernie, forget it. I'm fine. And, uh, he said, I'm coming over with a dog. And he was an Iditarod musher. And into our home walked a seven-year-old retired Iditarod husky named Salt. I fell in love with him within a matter of minutes. And so did our four and five-year-old children and my husband. And Salt moved in to our house. And that was the start of our family kennel. Within a few months, our children wanted to go in the little one-dog sled dog races in Anchorage, and we borrowed more dogs for that event. As the kids grew up, they needed another dog for the two-dog class, and then we went to the three-dog class and the seven-dog class. And before you knew it, my children were teenagers running the 150-mile junior Iditarod sled dog race. It's a camping trip, and those teens have so much fun out on the trail. And when Andy and Hannah went to college, there were 20 dogs in our backyard. Wow. There's there's a lot there. The first thing I want to jump back to is, first of all, so sorry for your loss. And I, I can't imagine what that's like when you, you started your story there. How did you get through that? And how did you how did you find those friends like Bernie that were so supportive to help out at the right time, at the right moment? Because that's, I think in a sense, like, I want more friends like Bernie. That's inc That's incredible. Well, I think miscarriage is very underestimated as an experience in our culture. And I am from New England, and these were mid-pregnancy losses. The first time it ha happened to me, I thought, oh, I can tough my way through this. That wasn't meant to be. And by the time we got to the third, I was pretty, I was pretty knocked down. Friends do get you through these things. I'm a very independent person, and I had to learn to, to let them in. 
And I did my darndest to keep Bernie out or to keep the dog out. Sure. <laughs> but Bernie had already, and his wife, Jeanette, had already given me a sled dog ride on their sled. And so I had oh, already, wow. they had already seen in the glint in my eye about this sport. I grew up with hunting dogs and I didn't care about the hunt, but I loved watching my dad and my brother work with our English setters in Labrador and, you know, bring home Thanksgiving dinner. And so Bernie and Jeanette had reached out to me in my sadness. We met them, of course, through preschool. They okay. had a young child too. In hindsight, they kept an eye on me and, and they made a bold move and it it did matter a lot. It sound, sounds like it. So they saw the glint in your eye. They saw your love for animals. Do you think that they picked up on that right away? I think they picked up on that right away. It's not very subtle. That That's I, fascinating. I really enjoy horses and dogs at that point. I was a mountaineer in Alaska. Mark and I did have two lovely children, but we were camping a lot, skiing in the back country. We always had been. Bernie and Jeanette had lived the life of Iditarod mushers. And sure. so they were kindred spirits to an extent. But I must say that was 1989, and I never dreamt I would run Iditarod in 2003. Wow. Now, I mean, I did not... I that was way too dramatic. Too yeah, too far, much of a leap. Too expensive. That. Too distracting from everything else we were doing. We were raising kids and two jobs. And so, when did the thought creep into your mind? So, salt enters your life and your family's life, and now your kids are starting to explore this new sport. Which I love the sound of it because it sounds like a proving ritual, and I think that that is so important for younger people and generally for anyone. So, when did you start becoming more serious about the sport? Well, as soon as we had salt and, you know, I'm dealing with young children, I had to be ahead of them just a little bit in right. terms of what you feed sled dogs, how you train them, where you keep them. I mean, they were all in our house all the time, but eventually when you don't keep 20 in your house, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have wanted to, but you don't. Wait, um, so how many dogs did you get into the house before you decided enough is enough? We need kennels. We need a full operation here. I, I think so five or six. And then we started putting them in our backyard in a very suburban neighborhood that did not expect sled dogs. So of course, then we had to move to some a fun place. Looks, yeah. Some fun looks from neighbors. Or... Right. Well, they loved it, but it was still, we couldn't have grown into a, a 20 dog kennel in that sure. particular house. So you moved. So and... we moved. Ultimately, we ended up renting a place out of town where we did most of our training. And when we had big numbers of dogs, we would we had this nice house in Anchorage, but we lived in this little cabin for a while with our with our several dozen dogs. So when you say we, was it the whole family? Was it just you, your husband, or your your kids? Would you alternate who was staying at the other training house? Depended on on how old the kids were at the time and and all of that. But yeah, there was school and sure. and all sorts of other commitments. I was working in school fundraising at the time, so I could be wherever I needed to be. I could work long distance and train dogs. Oh, that's great. But when the kids were at home, before they went to college, I did a lot of the training of the dogs. And my husband did tons of the planning and the craftsmanship. He and Andy were building sleds together when Andy was eight years old. Oh, wow. Hannah was not to be gender specific here, but it happened that she was sewing booties and doing a whole lot of support for the dog operation. She was racing. Andy was racing. We all played a different role. 
That's so cool because I'm thinking in my mind of technology companies and things like that where I'm hearing the roles of different family members like the CTO, the COO. That's really exciting because I think for a family, it's hard to come together, collaborate and all do something like all get on the same page and row in the same direction. Uh, well, and just to be specific, Andy did sew his own anorak, and <laughs> Hannah did chop wood. And I mean, it was it's actually go. a very, very all hands on deck yeah. type of organization. But to this day, my husband is the support person, and it took me the longest time to trust that that's what he wanted to be. Right. You know, to take 20 dogs anywhere, you have to have a very sophisticated series of boxes on top of a truck. And Mark built them from scratch, you know. Wow. I mean, he learned how to do it and he did it. Were you worried that he didn't want to do all this stuff because it was extra work? It Was it that from just like a conscientious standpoint where you were kind of worried that he didn't like this as much as you did? Or what was that I like? Think- I think I was so disinterested in being the support person. I just want to be gotcha. with the dogs all the time <laughs> that I felt like I was hogging all the fun. Right. So you you felt like you were getting like the best job right. essentially. And he was like, right. okay, sure. Yeah. So um, I was spending more time with the dogs and he was spending more time with the strategic planning and the craftsmanship of it, the winter camping, he was researching out the tents that you put wood stoves inside that are okay. light enough well, to carry on your dog sled yeah. so that you can go camping at 20, 40 below zero safely. And the more I learn about the sport and what it takes to compete in the Iditarod, it seems like there aren't just a couple of variables. There are literally thousands of different things you have to learn, not just about, you have to basically, like you were sharing earlier, become almost a veterinarian or at least be able to debate and talk with them intelligently. How much goes into this sport that people just aren't aware of? Well, I did a rod is a very long way. 1,100 miles is 1,100 miles. And you're out there on your own with your, in the beginning, 16 best friends. You start with 16 dogs, or you have, this year the race is going down to 14 limit on starting dogs. And you are out there with your 14, 16 best friends. So you don't feel alone. But the musher... I've I've heard it said that you take care of your dogs and they take care of you, but the musher is immensely responsible for everything from nutrition to their well-being to navigational skills and basically to have the mental stability when you're extremely sleep deprived to make decisions that are going to foster well-being for the whole operation. And the human and the canine side of the line are intimately connected and and you can't have the human or the canine element in a dog team fall apart right because you won't go anywhere if that happens yeah so it sounds like we're talking kind of about trust we're talking about that bond how do you think about building and maintaining that what type of things are you thinking about to basically accelerate and build that trust with your dogs Well, you have to have a lot of patience and you always have to be open for new information. So I can decide that I have two great leaders. Those are the dogs that run at the front of the line. But the fact of the matter is, if one of them gets slightly sore and you have to take them out of the team, you have to put somebody else up there. Mm -hmm. Well, who on the back of the line would really rise to that occasion? You have to constantly be looking for that potential in each individual. So that's part of it. So you're looking for that ambition, that maybe just interest in leading. Or confidence to go out front. Right. Then there's the dynamic between that dog and the dog next to it. Do they get along? Does that veteran leader welcome the sidekick who happens to be three years younger? Or do those two 
basically work against each other for some unknown reason. Sure. So then you have to have a fourth dog to rise to the occasion. Right. So there's just a lot that goes into that. Then there's nutrition. I mean, there's so many different angles in yeah. to this. It just sounds enormously complicated, yeah, but once- also incredibly rewarding because this sounds like just an insane amount of work where it's a great industry. And I think luckily the best mushers are able to basically pay themselves back, I guess, and you know maybe make make a little bit of money or make a good deal of money. That's exciting. That's great. But it sounds like it's just hard to get started at first. It's, it's a hard process where there's so much investment of time and resources and everything like that. How did you prepare psychologically to convince yourself, your husband, your family, that investing the time, the money, and the resources in this was going to be something good? Yeah, it was going to turn out well for everyone. Were you thinking like that or how did you approach that? Well, so there are two things. We'd been in the sport from 1989 till 2003, before I even got to that starting line. And I didn't think about running I did or odd until 2000. Literally, it never crossed my mind. So we were fortunate. When you're learning with your little children about a sport, it's very sequential. You know, you've got one dog, you've got two, you've got three, you're going one mile, you're going three miles, you're going six. So by the time... I decided, okay, I'm going to give Iditarod a a try. I was very experienced in the sport, or so I thought. The decision to run Iditarod and decide that it wasn't too much, I mean, frankly, as a woman, I felt like it might be Mm -hmm. too much about me, too ambitious, too costly from everything else we've been doing. But we were just out of all these wonderful years with our children, 20 years of parenting and working together as a team. So then it's me and Mark. And then boom, we decide that I'm going to go to Nome. Um, And this is right as your last child is preparing. As my last child goes off to college, I'm preparing for Iditarod. Did you set this up knowingly, knowing that you would need the next challenge, the next thing right away? Or what made you decide to do that like right as... Your well, Andy, our firstborn, ran Iditarod in between high school and college Gotcha. for another musher. He ran another musher's dogs and he loved it. And he knew that I needed to do it or so he thought. And okay. so at his finish line, he threw his arms around me and said, mom, you have to do this. And I've joked that God himself could have told me to do something <laughs> like this. And I wouldn't have listened as well as I listened to my son. So... <laughs> I decided right then and there that I would. I have a lot of energy. I think if my husband were here, he'd say, oh, God, she had to do something when the empty nest (laughs) came. I really felt like it was an opportunity that I was lucky to have. I had the experience. We had the dogs. They were well-suited for it. I had run some 200-mile races at that point. Oh, wow. And I had enjoyed it, and I had done fine in those. Are these just like local races that are set up or are these just open races that occasionally people do just for time or how, how do they? These are local races that are set up. Ultimately, you have to qualify to run Iditarod and oh, okay. you have to do a series of two and three 400 mile races. Okay. Gotcha. And then so, after you check off the three to four prerequisites or right. well, Okay. There, gotcha. there are prerequisites. At this point in time, I believe you have to run 750 miles of races and it has to be stretched out over a period of time. So you can't just have on your bucket list to run Iditarod, right. come up to Alaska and just get do it. 750 miles in before you get the yeah. 1100. It's a very dog focused sport. And so it's not fair to the dogs to do that. Right. 
because you're asking so much of them in terms of they're the ones that are putting in their bodies and essentially on the line. Right. The musher is too, but... Well, and relationship building takes time. You know, sure. I, I never could have done it if we hadn't had literally a few decades or a decade and a half in the sport. Yeah. I'm just not... I just wouldn't have. It's, it, it never would have occurred to me. These were our dogs I was running. And they were... We were sold dogs that are sensitive because we bought them from very competitive mushers. And for whatever reason, these dogs typically didn't meet the criteria of a very hard driving competitive team. And these mushers knew our kids, they knew me, they knew I had a lot of patience and I was only gonna work with positive reinforcement. So we were acquiring over the years, dogs from very competitive mushers. And we set out to enable those dogs to live their highest potential with us. Very cool. And so, so you are already thinking about the emotions and empathy quotient of your team from a very early time. I was. I was. That's so cool. And people will tell you that I developed some entitled dogs, and I'm proud of that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's, they uh, um, told but, me what they wanted, and I usually complied. <laughs> that's, that's so fascinating. It, it sounds like dogs, too, that are what other people might think of as entitled are the types that are going to tell you if they need something. They might speak up or maybe just show it not obviously not tell you but maybe you get what i'm trying to say here that do they tell you what they need more or i think they i think they speak their mind our kids speak their mind i like that that's how we raised our kids you know we had a very free and open discussion we still do yeah these days you know for sure whenever there's something going on that's controversial or challenging or out of our reach our family ends up in quite heated and fun discussions about these things and I love that yeah and and it's with respect but it's very open there's no limits to what we'll talk about and uh and so that sounds like a great environment to foster new ideas and have yeah a fun environment right well we think so I mean that doesn't mean there aren't some nights where somebody goes goes to sleep (laughs) a little ornery but um what would everybody else laugh about right (laughs) yeah I mean you know we start laughing pretty soon there's there's always a joke about it afterwards so it's no secret from my book, I getting to the finish line of Iditarod took two tries. And when my dogs got to the sea ice off the coast of the Bering Sea, they sat down and they said, we are not going an inch further. And so that was the moment when my dogs basically told me off. And that was in the first one. That how, was in my first race. How far into the race were you when they sat down at the Bering, Bering it was, Sea? 880 miles to be exact. Wow. I haven't thought about this or anything. <laughs> so 80, roughly 80% of the way through yeah. or 82 or something. We were two to three days away from the finish line. Wow. Did you know instantly when they sat down that they were tapped out, they weren't going to do any more? How long did it take for you to realize that? It took me a long time to realize it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. We left the village of Shaktulik. In hindsight, I can see trouble was brewing and that's all in the story. But I thought, I mean, I had never asked these dogs to do anything they didn't want to do with great zeal. I tried to slow them down on many occasions. Sure. And when they sat down on that sea ice, I was stunned. Frankly, I thought that happened to competitive mushers that push their dogs too hard. Our only goal was to get to the finish line with happy, healthy dogs. We'd rested ample. I knew we had rested in hindsight, I think we might have rested too much. And they got off their run-rest sequence that worked best for them. But I was shocked and I I could have lost a limb and it wouldn't have been as upsetting to me to have my dogs tell me no. Wow. I I was devastated. I mean, the only reason you're doing this journey is this joint 
escapade. And right. they were clearly unhappy. I mean, noses to the ground, ears flat. No. And I tried everything. I tried to cajole them. I encouraged them. I gave them a snack. I put every dog in lead that I had. I tried dogs I'd never considered putting in lead before. Do you feel like the team of dogs knew that with everyone cycling through faster and faster, they knew that there was like too much chaos? Or do you feel like that was the wrong move? Or do you feel like that was the right move that you tested everyone and pushed everyone pretty hard? I think my dogs were spooked by the ice. The whole race up until that point is on hills, in the woods, or on the Yukon River. Sure. And so in that year, the race was had long, long river miles because it was a, a rerouted year because of a warm winter. It was the first of now what's come to be a common phenomenon up there. And I think that you get to the Bering Sea and there's a whistle in the high atmosphere. Hmm. The landscape is all white. There is nothing. You, you don't see anything. The wind was just zinging, but it didn't look like it was. And I think they were spooked. But more than that, I had a very alpha leader and I think she had a phobia of that ice, and she relayed that to everybody else. Wow. But you asked before about the various dimensions of the game. I also think I was feeding them too much food right then. Like you wouldn't want to eat a Big Mac at mile 20 of a marathon, <laughs> right? Well, you wouldn't. You might not want to eat a Big Mac ever if you're me. But um, All right, there with you. Yeah. But uh, they were getting thinner. That's inevitable, and it's healthy for a marathon dog. Sure. But I did not have my confidence. I was a rookie, and I had you never gone 10 days in a row before. The same way right. you're not going to run a marathon before you run a marathon for the right. first time. So I think I made some errors that, I mean, I'll never know for sure what happened. Sure. It seems to be one of the fun things about the sport, but also one of the maddening things is that there, because there are so many variables, because you're dealing with another animal psychology, it seems like there's always more to learn. Is Do you feel like that with the Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm still learning from my dogs today. And on the second race, everything did not go smoothly on that race either. The Mission Studios creates custom media for world-class companies like Salesforce, Twilio, Katera, and more. To connect with our team of creatives, you can reach us at info at themission.co. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.